electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the correction and the comeback. After the worst week for stocks since June and that big beatdown in tech, why some well-known market watchers now say your money is primed for a push higher. We debate that with our investment committee today. And with me for the hour are Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, John Nigerian. Brenda Vingello is CIO of Sandhill Global Advisors. Rob Seachin's back with us, UBS Private Wealth Management and one of Forbes' top 100 financial advisors. Let's begin by checking stocks. They are higher, as I said, on this Monday, trying to work their way back from last week's sell-off. John Nigerian, I go to you first because you saw enough. You saw enough in the sell-off in big tech to put some money back to work. You bought Apple. You bought the stock. You bought the calls. You added to things you already had, but why? Well, Scott, um, I saw a lot of institutions doing that. And uh, as you know, I'm a guy like a surfer. When that wave starts picking up, I start paddling faster. And we were seeing money flows into, you just named them, Apple, Gilead, uh, Microsoft, a host of the stocks that were already parts of my portfolio. So what I did, Scott, was I basically rounded up certain stocks, like after that split in Apple, I needed to add shares basically to get myself to a more tradable lot size um, than some of these odd lots. You know, after you get through a stock split, you end up with instead of, for instance, 11,000, maybe you want 15,000 shares or whatever it is. I want to get to those round lots to make it easier. And they were so accommodating to let us get back into those levels, Scott, pushing Apple down below 112 and things like that. So um, thank you for that, for the folks that pushed it down there. Um, As far as Microsoft, um, it was down in the pre-market. It made that big turn after the uh, uh, people were disseminating and kind of reacting to the news of Oracle and TikTok. And then all of a sudden it's up 4%. So there was a lot of... uh, institutional interest in many of the names of those batter stocks. Are you you making a statement here? Are you making a statement here, John, that you think the worst of the selling in some of these big cap technology names is over? Yes, sir. Yes, I am. And yes, it felt like that. It felt like that last week when we had that somewhat dramatic bounce. If we would have um, done the reverse of what we've done today, Scott, if we would have pounded to the downside by 40 handles in the pre-market, I think you would have shaken a lot of those hands harder, and I think you might have gotten more of a washout. But instead, um, you've got the, the, the people that did hold and the people that uh, held through that bounce at that 50-day moving average and things like that, they were adding to positions, not liquidating. So I just more or less moved along with them, Scott. Vol came down, um, you know, this week or last week, 
Um, what, what did we see? 36, I think, on the VIX, Scott. And this week, um, we're substantially lower than that. So right. there were a lot of reasons to be willing to add to stock. All right. So, so Rob Seachin, you've got a pretty nimble uh, investor making a big, bold statement right here. Is he right? <laughs> Is now the time? I mean, you're, you're one of, um, you know, Barron's Forbes top financial advisors. Is now the time to start adding to big tech again? I think selectively you can do that, Scott. I, I would caution investors about making too big of a bet. I think we've come awful far, awful fast. I expect increased volatility in the as we approach the election. I think you've got this tug of war between this policy mobilization that supported a lot of these stocks, this growth dynamic that they have, which has allowed them to be very successful in this stay-at-home economy environment, and the fact that rates are really low, and when you discount those earnings way off into the future at a lower rate, you get much higher multiples. So they were really well supported. But the dichotomy between growth and value has really gotten to an excessive level. And when you come into the election season, which is definitely going to be a contentious election season and may end up being a contested election, I think you've got to be mindful of the risk. And we are we are believers in increasing vol, and we're repositioning, um, de-risking clients headed into the election. But intermediate term, I have to say that I, that I really share John's uh, more constructive view. Mm. The other thing that I would say, Scott, just really quickly, is technically, after the sell-off that we had, a lot of these names are really, really well supported. Um, and, you know, we'll see if we can break through some of those moving averages and head to new highs, or if they become points of resistance uh, for a little bit. And, you know, I, I, that remains to be seen. So we are being selective within tech because you can't sell because of all those gains that are built up. But we're definitely trimming some and we're definitely repositioning towards some of the cyclical recovery plays at the margin. All right. I'll get back to this conversation in, in just a second. I want to go a lot deeper um, into it. I do have a stock on the move right now somewhat sharply. It's Caesars Entertainment. Contessa Brewer has the story behind that move. Contessa, what can you tell us? Well, Scott, right now I'm looking at ESPN with two big separate deals with Caesars and DraftKings to link ESPN content with the sports books for both uh, Caesars Sportsbook, operated by William Hill, and by DraftKings Sportsbooks. Uh, Caesars will be the exclusive odds provider. DraftKings will be the exclusive provider of daily fantasy sports. And Caesars CEO Tom Reig is pointing out that ESPN has unparalleled reach in the sports world. ESPN just, of course, unveiled that new studio at Caesars Palace on the Las Vegas Strip last week or so. And then these deals come together and provide really formidable competition for Penn National Gaming, which has seen its shares skyrocket this year on the back of that deal it made with Barstool Sports and this 60 million plus uh, content users that it's bringing to the table. Now you've got content, again, driving these uh, stock price moves. Look now, Caesars up 8%. Content in sports betting really is king. Yeah. Speaking of king, DraftKings uh, is ripping, too. It's up nearly 9%. Contessa, thanks. Doc, you're my guy on this. Um, what do you make of this news? Well, that's huge for all of those names, Scott. It's huge for Penn, eventually. It's huge for DraftKings and Caesars, obviously. 
Um, this is going to be just a, a fantastic deal, Scott. I haven't seen the numbers, the ratings numbers for the weekend, but I bet you that people were loving seeing sports back. I know you were cheering because your team won. Uh, our team won here in Chicago, came back against the Lions. There was a lot of reasons to be pretty grateful to see uh, even some fans in the stands in some of those uh, locations, Scott. So uh, that felt a little more normal. But this, this is something that, you know, has been a long time coming. William Hill, of course, being from overseas, um, they've been used to this sports betting on a, you know, supported basis by many of those leagues, obviously, um, the the uh, soccer in particular over there, but it, it, it extends everywhere. Right now, we're seeing it here, Scott. And the fact that the NFL has embraced it, the fact that some of these teams have their preferred carriers and things like that for this. That's amazing. So let's let's do that. I mean, you're seeing Caesars is up almost 11 percent now. Uh, that entire spectrum's on the run today, as we were just talking about off Contessa's report. We're going to double dip there as well, because we'll come back later with our call of the day, which plays right into the gaming space. I'll wait for that. I want to get back to our conversation, though, as we're coming off this this discussion with um, with Rob and Doc about big tech. John Najarian making some big moves, adding to stock and options in Apple. Brenda is now the time to put more money to work in tech. Is the coast clear, so to speak? I think if you haven't owned them, buying them on a pullback like we've seen is okay. But in terms of what we have been doing, we established a tech overweight um, earlier this year during the March-April timeframe, and we actually eliminated that overweight in late July because we felt like uh, the tech story was well known, uh, the stocks were getting a little overdone, um, and here we are, we're seven months into the COVID environment that we've been dealing with, where the, many of these companies are experiencing a renaissance in terms of the overall uh, market share gains they're winning and adoption happening. But we're concerned that when we look forward to next year and the following year, that we could see the more cyclically oriented sectors actually out-earn technology because so much of it has been pulled into 2020. Yeah. So in that, with that in mind, we think that could be the catalyst to get some of the more cyclically oriented sectors uh, moving the right direction and for a catch-up trade to really begin. Joe, jo, are, we, are we calling the coast is clear too, too soon? Th- these stocks ran up a lot. And we're, we're talking about a, a one-week, not even, sell-off. You know, okay, last week, Apple was off 7.5%. Facebook was down 5.7%. Amazon, 5.4%. Microsoft, 4.8%. Alphabet, 4.1%. That's it? That's the sell-off that that you're going to get? These things are fine now? They're going to be back? Just keep going full throttle ahead? Yeah, I think we're calling the coast being clear a little bit too soon. Uh, I would use the word encouraging. I said on Friday I believe that much of the price damage had been done, but I'm not necessarily sure the time damage has been done. So uh, John mentioned the 50-day moving average. There was technical support for both the NASDAQ and the S&P. At the 50-day moving average, you're seeing the technical support uh, coming to fruition today. I also think a little bit of the merger Monday effect is lending some confidence and obviously some positive pricing to equities. But no, Scott, the coast is not clear. We have a volatile period, as Rob correctly defined, as we look forward towards the end of September and into the fall. Yeah. NVIDIA, Arm Holding, that's some M&A that we got. That's a, a possible catalyst for things to move to the upside, too. Jim Labenthal, you own a bunch of these stocks. You own Apple, you own Google, and we can talk about maybe one of the fallout effects from the NVIDIA deal as well. But what's your take on big tech right now? 
Well, the, the names that you just mentioned, big tech, Apple, Google, and somebody else was mentioning Microsoft. I Listen, I think those have been fairly priced. If we take Apple as an example, it's around 29 times next year's earnings. If this were a year ago or two years ago, we'd say, wow, that's expensive. But the fact of the matter is we're in a low interest rate environment. And any stock valuation model that you use, just about all of them are going to respond upwards uh, when you lower interest rates the way that, that they have been, and, and they're going to stay low for years to come. So th- those names don't worry me at all. Um, to Joe's point that you know maybe we're not through this, where might you see some after tremors? I do think some of the higher flyers, the things that are up three, four, five times on the year, are still susceptible to profit-taking. Now, yes, that includes Tesla. It includes companies that have done fabulously in terms of their business, like Zoom. But when they're up six times, it just leaves them vulnerable. If somebody takes profit and that selling begets selling from others, that's what you have to look out for. But in the in the bellwether tech names, I'm not worried about Microsoft, Google, or well, Apple. You're just, here. Are, no you, are, are you suggesting, Jim, that, okay, interest rates are low, we get it, they're not going anywhere, yeah. that you could just keep expanding the multiple and just justify it repeatedly by the fact that interest rates are lower? I mean, you have to have fundamentals eventually catch up to the story, right? You can't go from here to oblivion uh, in multiples just, just because rates are low, can you? Of course what you said is accurate, right? Of course you can't. Trees don't grow to the sky. But when you look at those Apples and Microsofts and Googles, I mean, these are, for the most part, Googles in the high 20s as well. These are not egregiously priced stocks. Now, look, NVIDIA at the beginning of this year was 35 times forward earnings. Now I believe it's around 50 times earnings. Am I rushing out to buy NVIDIA? No, but I don't think there's an air pocket forming underneath it as well. So, yes, there are going to be natural limits, but when you talk about the high 20s, low 30s, for these growing companies that are bellwethers, I don't think those are the, are the levels that you need to worry about. How about these calls that you get from, you know, well-known strategists um, today, Rob Seachin, David Costin at Goldman, warp speed correction on the road to 3,600, which is the magic number, by the way, of the day, because J.P. Morgan's Dubrovko Lakos, he's got a late Friday night note reiterating S&P 3,600, Piper Sandler reiterating 3,600. So you're looking at 8% or so upside between now and year's end. You have an election coming up, Rob, as, as you said. Do, do those make sense to you, 3,600 from, from where we are today? I think it's dependent on how you get there. Yes, they make sense. If you believe the, the economic recovery stays intact, we're going to get there. It's just a question of when and how. What's the path traveled to get there? If somebody's a very long-term investor, there is no doubt that there's a lot of opportunity in this market. No doubt. But I well, don't know is that then? But I want to know. I mean, it's fine to say it. But, mm-hmm. but the, the person at home who's just listening to you say that says, okay, then yeah. where? Tell me where. I think it's in the cyclical laggards, right? It's in the lower P.E. stuff. So you look at industrials, for example. There's a lot of the industrial companies that are really doing very well right now. You know, I can't talk about stocks on the show. I wish I could. But in the industrial, anything that's playing off this recovery theme is doing well. But I don't know many investors who are anxious to step up in front of what's going to be not only a contentious election season, but possibly a massive change in policy to the extent Biden wins, and possibly a contested election outcome. 
The only way you see a re relief rally, in my opinion, is if you go into this and Trump ultimately uh, wins because some of those policies stay in place. Yeah, what, if Biden win, what, gets... if, what if Biden wins, but the Senate doesn't change over, right? Then it's not, well, it's not just so that, easy that, to snap your fingers and change policy. No, I, th I, think that's, I think that's a little less likely. I do think that's a little on the Senate side. I think that's a little less likely. And what I think you would see is there are going to be some policy changes. It creates some uncertainty. I think you have a lot of investors with extreme gains in a lot of positions. And I think we would be foolish not to presume that they don't take some of those gains. And that doesn't have an impact on markets. And let's not forget, Scott, the structure of markets is such that a lot of these stocks are owned by ETFs. So just pairing back beta or market exposure actually impacts a lot of these very large cap tech names. And so, you know, if I'm doing any rotation trade, these stocks are going to take a slight hit. If anybody's taking any gains, these stocks are going to take a slight hit. Is that permanent? Is that long lasting? I don't think so. Yeah, I got people like John Nigerian, so. though, putting more money into the, in the kind of names you're talking about. And when you look at 3,600, Maybe it doesn't sound so far-fetched, even this pickup in volatility that we've seen, if, in fact, it's just your typical correction, which Mike Santoli's been taking a look at and suggests that the evidence thus far says it is. Is that right, Mike? It's pretty much the case, Scott. First of all, 3,600, 12 days ago, we were at 3,588. So, you know, we, we were there, and we had it feel, and uh, it, there's nothing that says you can't get back to where you were 12 days ago, almost without much of anything Changing. In fact, if anything, I think Wall Street sentiment uh, is on the somewhat cautious side, which nets out to being, you know, a, maybe a support for stocks. But in terms of this being a relatively routine correction, what would you look at in terms of going through the checklist? Well, the stocks that were up the most, that were most extended over their trend, have corrected the most. They have pulled back the most. That's the big cap, mega cap techs. Uh, there's not been evidence of really credit stress or macro uncertainty rising through this period. Because you're seeing things like industrials and consumer discretionary outside of Amazon outperform during this period. The bond market's not really telling you that anything all that fresh has happened in terms of new pressure to, to lead to, uh, to what the market has done right here. So all those things put together say, okay, fine. Most of the problem we had going into September were a, a grossly overbought market, mostly in, in the NASDAQ, and sentiment that was getting maybe a little bit too overconfident. And so the question is, how much do you have to bleed away in terms of those gains from August to get you to a point where you're back on trend and maybe uh, things can settle out a little bit? That's the question for today, I would expect. I don't think today tells you, uh, yes, it's over, no, it's not over, definitively because, you know, this is a process, not a moment. But I think all those things fit into this idea that why we call it a correction is that the, that prices got way uh, out of whack relative to the longer term trend. And a course correction brings them somewhat closer uh, together. I also wonder, though, you know, we're not mm -hmm. just talking about the Apples and the Microsofts of the world in these big fang mega cap tech stocks, Mike. We're talking about the other names, such as the, and I'm just going to rattle off some of the names. I'm, I'm not calling out these stocks in suggestive in any way that, that they, they need to pull back further. But, you know, Slack and Tesla and DocuSign and Square, Shopify, Fastly, yep. Wayfair, Zoom, Peloton, you know where I'm going here, right? Th these moves make the moves in Apple and some of these other uh, look paltry. So the, the question there is, have they pulled back enough to meet the criteria that you're talking about? It's not clear. They've, first of all, to Joe's point, we've not traveled very far back in time. Uh, the, the move 
in terms of the last phase of the rally in August was so steep that something like Apple's only back to where you were, like August 12th or something like that, you know, coming into this week. So I don't know that really you've readjusted anything. I don't think that uh, people who are kind of gunning them and speculating in, a, in an aggressive way on the upside in August have necessarily gone away. And you're seeing that activity again uh, in these stocks. So I, I don't think the complexion has changed. It's almost a matter of, well, if this is where things maybe bottom for a little while, and we come back from here, what it basically tells you is the market didn't really get oversold. You didn't really pull the slingshot back very far. Maybe the ensuing rally gets you a little bit back toward the highs, but it's not necessarily the start of something great on the upside. And so, uh, it, and then if you go deeper, then maybe you can have a little more of momentum and energy build toward a better uh, rally down the road. Uh, and I'm worried, what I'm really watching for, though, is whether if you have any further bouts of weakness, it does come along with things like credit spreads widening out, uh, or, or other signs that the cyclical parts of the, of the market and the economy are starting to transmit some kind of uncertain message. And right now, that's not what you're getting out of this. Also, I just, there's still so many unknowns. We just don't know what, you know, uh, amid these warnings of, of what the fall, as we just enter it and we open <clears> the door to the fall, is truly going to be like with the virus and what the impact may be on the economy more broadly as we've been in this um, sort of smooth kind of sailing period in many big parts of the country. And I know the virus is still an issue in, in many areas. We're still doing 33 to 35,000 cases a day on average. And it's, it's important to keep all of that into perspective. Joe, do you want in with, with Mike? Yeah, I, I do. I think the one thing that would make me feel better, and, and I think all investors, if we could get some stabilization in energy pricing, particularly crude oil, that seems to be uh, a, a very hidden, not much talked about, but yet concerning condition. We've fallen back here for some odd reason, and I'm wondering what signal that is sending. Is it signaling uh, that global growth maybe is moderating and is not uh, recovering as fast as we expected? But that would be the one condition that I would look at, Michael, uh, that would give me confidence that we could gain momentum to try and accelerate back towards those earlier September highs. Yeah, I mean, that's a totally fair point. I have kind of lost, as a lot of people have, lost faith in the oil prices, you know, economic bellwether status to some degree. I mean, copper prices are hanging in there. Um, you see other, uh, other tells that you would look toward uh, that, that would suggest that things might be okay because you have a structural uh, issue that's weighing on, uh, on crude oil. But there's no doubt about it that there's not... Uh, the markets are not singing in one voice about what's going on, uh, and that sort of, I guess, lends to the staticky period. Yeah. Jim, Jim, you, you got rid of ExxonMobil. You, you wanted, speaking of uh, oil and energy and the trade there and what the outlook is, why did you do that? Yeah, well, it's a stock-specific thing, but it also informs the discussion that we're having about energy here. Look, Exxon bought XTO, I don't know, about eight years ago, paid $19 billion for it, and it's still carrying that asset mostly at that value. And natural gas and energy prices in general have just declined so much that that really doesn't make sense. So I'm not very happy with how they're managing their balance sheet. But I think just to get back to the conversation that Joe and Mike were just having, you'll notice I'm not replacing it with another energy stock. And to use Mike's word, yeah, I've lost quite a bit of faith in the energy trade right here. It's just clear that there is too much supply for an ever-decreasing amount of demand. But to Joe's point, and I think this is important, so I'm going to say it, you know, if you're looking for one area that could next bring up the baton of leadership, you've already seen it take place in industrial. I think financials has a shot, certainly more of a shot than energy does, oh, in my boy, opinion. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Here we go again, <laughs> right? Why do, you, why do you say that? 
Well, look, look, I think it's worth the discussion and, you know, without ridicule, of course, I see what's going on with the interest rate environment. I was just talking about it a minute ago. But what you're also seeing is an economy that is generally improving, a labor market that is generally improving, and that lowers the pressure of credit losses on the big banks, which is really, in my opinion, what's been holding them back more than the yield curves level or shape. The fact that so many of these names are trading below book value indicates the market thinks there are much more loan losses to come than have already been reserved. And I think that that is where the disconnect lies. It's, it's so interesting. Uh, Mike, Mike Santoli, by the way, thank you very much. I appreciate your reporting and, and being a part of our, our conversation. Um, you know, John Ajarian, Jim makes a case for the financials. Last week, Sandy Weil um, made a very articulate and compelling case for a lot of these financial stocks being, being cheap. Um, and you listen to that and you maybe want to go out and make a move. But you've been beaten up every time you've tried to put some belief behind the financials, more or less. Why now? Why try it again? Well, um, at some point, Scott, I think that trade is going to work. And you and I know that uh, neither one of us can pick tops or bottoms. Um, but we sort of scale in and scale out. Um, you don't just go all in, like t- to your point about me adding to positions today. I didn't go all in. I did add to a number of those positions, but specifically um, to what Sandy was talking about in his old company, City. I think Ms. Frazier um, is really a game changer there because of ESG, because of 30 some odd trillion dollars that invests that way, Scott. You know, this is the first woman heading up a global bank. And I think that's going to be attractive to an awful lot of investment uh, folks because of that alone. Now you take into account the other things that are setting up. We'll hear from the Fed this week. They're not going to be moving rates up right now. So it's not a rate story. But if you can pick up City at some distressed pricing, which I think you still are, versus, you know, historical uh, uh, metrics. I think that's a good idea here, but I don't go all in. But I think you can, in that one in particular, put some money to work. See, my pushback would be, look, I'm sure that Ms. Fraser is going to do a great job. And the, the, mm-hmm. the banks, you know, for the most part, are being run by very well-respected people. Yeah. They're, they're mm-hmm. always cited in these types of conversations as an area of corporate America with very high leadership. Jamie Dimon. No one says anything yep. bad about Jamie. Brian Moynihan nope. gets rave reviews. James mm-hmm. Gorman at Morgan Stanley does the same. But that has not translated into stock outperformance. David Solomon at Goldman Sachs, etc. Right. No one has anything bad to say about anybody there. And for good reason. That's not a good excuse, though, necessarily to go out and buy the stock, as we've learned painfully, though, Doc. Yeah, well, very true. And just a moment ago, you and Joe were talking about energy and uh, oil in particular. And I don't know how you get a recovery without massive production cuts. Still, from this level, Scott, I don't know how you get that, because you could be the best person running an airline. Um, you could be the best person running some of these energy concerns. But how are, with, when you take that many planes off the market, how do you make money if you're those energy producers? And if you're taking that much off the market, how do these companies, uh, the airlines that is, make money? 
Well, that same thing is faced, of course, by Moynihan, by Solomon, by Jamie Dimon, and now soon by Ms. Frazier, because you've got interest rates where they're not getting the same sort of uh, environment that Sandy had years ago. You, this yeah, is you're making be my a point long for time me. Coming. You're making yeah, my point well, for that, me. That, exactly. But on the other hand, are we closer to um, a bottom or a very, very cheap price for those assets that we just discussed? Or are we right. in the middle to upper I, end? And in the case of those, you're near the bottom. Okay. I, I got to take a break, yeah. Doc. Thank you for that. Up next, we told you about Caesars and DraftKings. They're ripping higher right now. Check out this mystery chart, too. It's a gaming stock. It's up more than 40% in two months. And Goldman Sachs says it's time to sell it. We're going to debate that next in our call of the day. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back right after this on The Half. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier. Because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion. Helping the world keep promises. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Tropical Storm Sally has now strengthened into a Category 1 hurricane with sustained winds of 85 miles per hour. It has also shifted to the east, which takes it closer to New Orleans. It is expected to make landfall overnight. Reports that Russia paid the Taliban bounties to kill U.S. soldiers have not been confirmed by U.S. intelligence agencies. That is according to the general in charge of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. He says the search for evidence continues. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has been taken off a ventilator and is able to get out of bed, according to his doctors. French and Swedish labs confirming today that Navalny was poisoned with a Soviet-era nerve agent. Russia's foreign minister has canceled a visit to Germany as international tensions increase over that poisoning. And the northern lights putting on just a spectacular display in the skies over Finland. The shimmering light show was visible for hours this morning, and even bigger displays are expected in the coming weeks. Something to look forward to if you're in that part of the world. That's the news update this hour. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, I appreciate that, Sue. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs today is betting against, I mentioned a casino stock was also in the news today, MGM Resorts. They downgrade it to a sell. They anticipate a slower recovery in Las Vegas. We've made it our call of the day. John, what do you do with this? Me, Scott, did you say John? Yeah. Oh, um, Scott, I think it's uh, an interesting play um, to downgrade them here and now. Um, it hasn't exactly had outstanding performance, obviously, because of what's happened with the limited access to bringing more folks on. But uh, I think the deal focus over on Caesars, if people are forgetting about MGM, is mistaken. I think MGM is still a significant player in the space. 
good exposure all over the globe, including online. So I wouldn't exactly throw this one out at this level, Scott. Kind of the opposite of some of that superheating that we talked about in other sectors. Yeah. This one's been flat on its back for most of uh, the last three months. Part of the problem. Four, four, six months. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Doc. I, I thought you were finished. No I problem. apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe, part of the, the problem is the pizzazz, if you will, is, is elsewhere, right? Contessa comes on. She talks about Caesars. Caesars making a nice move. You got Penn National, the deal with Barstool, DraftKings. What, what, what about here? Mm-hmm. I, I, do you still own Penn or no, or no? I got out of Penn way too soon, and I am going to completely disagree with uh, my good friend John Nigerian. Uh, I, w- I would not buy MGM here. I think they are in the wrong destinations here uh, domestically. New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, you know the states that they're in. In addition to that, what's very important is some form of a digital presence. MGM, their digital presence, they only own 15% of it. So, yes, Penn National is the correct way to approach this right now. They'll be launching uh, the online betting app soon. They don't have, uh, they're not hamstrung by these destinations that are in the wrong place. And clearly they have a distinctive marketing advantage. Um, just look at what was just announced with DraftKings and ESPN yeah. and Caesars. Why is that? They're going after the content relationship that Barstool has currently with Penn National. And, and say what you want, Dave Portnoy and Barstool has done an incredibly compelling job gaining momentum in uh, content, and now they're going to be delivered on terms of online betting in a way that's very advantageous for those that will be using it. That's why, uh, Jim, as, as you make the argument that, you know, it's a binary deal. You, you need a vaccine for the casino trade to work. That's not necessarily true. And the performance of some of these other stocks would suggest that you don't. You just need to be in the right areas of the marketplace and have a big enough presence, as Joe just said, and I think he's a thousand percent right, in digital. The companies that do, the partnerships that they're making, and the ones that they will continue to make are the stories that are going to continue to stand out. Yeah, I I think that's a valid point, Scott. So let me elaborate on what I was saying. When I'm looking at these gaming stocks that maybe don't have as much of a digital presence, as much as these content partnerships that we're talking about, and are more reliant on hotel occupancy, say, on the Strip, those are the ones I'm talking about that really need a vaccine. And, And on those ones, more to the point, You know, you've had them rally on the talk of a vaccine coming. Those might be the classic sell the news once you get that. But let me be clear, the point you're making and that Joe's making, I agree with. These ones that have online betting behind them and don't require as much physical presence, those ones are going to work out fine. Yeah. We have a number of other interesting calls today. Rahel is with us, as usual, to go through some of those. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Scott. Yeah, and it's quite a mixed bag today. So let's start with... Oregon Stanley initiating coverage of Thermo Fisher with an overweight rating. Price target goes to 485 bucks. So the analysts expect continued market share gains in biopharma, especially emerging markets in Asia. Consider this, Scott. So Timo's revenue in China jumped from $400 million in 2010 to nearly $3 billion in 2019. The stocks also had a nice run this year, up about 35%. You can see it's up about 1.5% right now. We also know that video games have been really hot this year, and Jefferies is upgrading GameStop to buy from hold. Price target increases $1 to $8. The note points out that with the new PlayStation and Xbox being released this year, that should give GameStop at least a strong 12 months. 
And finally, Needham is initiating coverage of overstock with a buy rating. Price target goes to $96. This is on continued strength in the home category and also a new management team. The stock has seen a sharp turnaround, Scott, up 2,100% in the last six months. And for context, on January 1st, its market cap was $278 million. Today, it's more like $3 billion, Scott. Wow. That's unbelievable, Rahel. Thank you, Rahel Solomon there. Uh, Jim, you own Thermo. Boy, this stock's making me happy, Scott. Um, and it's a relatively recent purchase, about two months ago. It's a very simple story that's coming to fruition. As you're doing more testing for COVID-19, as you're doing more drug development, and not just because of the, of the pandemic, but also because of aging demographics, that places revenue demand uh, for Thermo Fisher's products, which are reagents, chemicals, uh, laboratory equipment, and it's global. Uh, so, I, look, it's, it's a company that is well-managed and in the sweet spot of this crisis. I kind of hate to sound mercenary, but it is. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear you. Uh, appreciate that. All right, more trades ahead on the half, including the big ETFs to watch today. And guess what? Delivering Alpha is back. Our 10th anniversary year, September 30th. Our guests right now, including Stephen Schwartzman, Carla Harris, Chamath Palihapitiya, many more. We're still adding to that list as well. You can visit DeliveringAlpha.com to learn more and register. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. Let's get to Frank Holland. He has our ETF edge today. Hey, Frank. Hey there, Scott. Big M&A action driving the tech space higher today between Oracle's TikTok bid and NVIDIA's acquisition of SoftBank's arm. That's all powering the growth trade, at least for the moment. But over the past month, we've seen stronger inflows into value ETFs with more than $1 billion worth of outflows from growth funds like the Vanguard Growth ETF. That's the VUG. So is the value trade actually broken? Joining me now to discuss are Todd Rosenbluth, Senior Director of ETF and Mutual Fund Investing at CFRA, and Steve Grasso from Stuart Frankel. Uh, looks like we're having some technical difficulties right off the bat. Steve, we're going to toss things over to you. Startling number right there, or, or shocking number, more than a billion dollars have flowed from growth into value over the past month. Is that trade broken? Is the value versus growth trade actually broken, or, or should I say value ETFs broken? No, I, I don't think so, Frank. And I think people have been waiting for this to transpire. And those names that suck up all the oxygen in the room 
have been those tech names. But the truth is we're starting to see that paradigm shift now into value names, as you just said. Think about what's happened in the last, last month or so. You've had Apple, Tesla. Both of those splits have made people rush in, and they've done nothing, zero, for shareholder value. So today you get the NVIDIA news, and it starts up again. All the algorithms rush in and buy anything tech-related, and the same thing is going to happen. You'll see this wear off in the next couple of days or so. The major question, Frank? You have to ask yourself, with Tesla up 386% year-to-date and NVIDIA up 120% year-to-date, where is the next 30 to 50% to the upside coming from? Is it going to come from those names, or is it going to come from the names on the value side of the spectrum that are down 30 to 50% uh, as of late and this year in particular, waiting on the economy to restart? Steve, great insight there. Ty, we're going to toss things over to you. Hopefully your technical problems have been resolved. Um, where does CFRA stand on growth versus value ETFs? Are there any macro factors that are leading you in that direction? We think that growth is going to outperform as we head into the election. You know, interest rates are likely to stay low. We need interest rates to climb higher for value strategies to do well. We like ETFs like IVW, uh, the iShares S&P 500 ETF, VUG, the Vanguard uh, growth ETF. We think those are going to outperform the value ones as we move forward. All right, Todd, thank you for that insight. We're going to have to cut it off right there. For more ETF Edge, just sit tight. We go live at 1 p.m. Eastern time on etfedge.cnbc.com with Luke Oliver of DWS Group to talk the bull case for China and the meteoric rise of ESG. You do not want to miss that one, Scott. Back over to you. All right, we won't. Frank Collin, thanks so much. John Najarian is back. Coming up, unusual activity. We'll get his latest trades when we come back in just 30 seconds. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Phil Lebeau with a news alert regarding Nikola. The shares are now trading positive for the day after being down earlier in the session. A couple of headlines coming out that are going to get some interest. GM CEO Mary Barra. Remember, GM has made an agreement with Nikola, taking an 11% stake in the company. Regarding the comments from Hindenburg Research, basically accusing Nikola of being... Uh, you know, fraudulent in their claims about the uh, trucks that they're building and developing. GM's Mary Barra said it, they have done appropriate due diligence. If that was done before the Nikola deal, also says that she believes that the Nikola deal gives GM size and scale. So they're standing beside Nikola. She said any further questions regarding any claims that Nikola may have made or CEO or Chairman Trevor Milton may have made, those should be referred to Nikola. But the, the bottom line is this, Scott. You've got GM CEO Mary Barra less than a week after GM made a big deal with Nikola coming out and saying, yeah, we've heard the allegations and we're essentially standing by Nikola. We did due diligence on this company. Yeah. Hey, Phil, um, I, I don't know what Nikola was doing before this report. Could we could we show the intraday uh, on yeah, Nikola? Yeah, it was negative guys? at the beginning of the day. Yeah, it, it, was, was, negative. it was negative. They put a, so, and they put out a point-by-point -point response. And one reason it was negative, Scott, is they essentially confirmed that there is video of one of their trucks and in the Hindenburg research report, they say, look, this truck wasn't self-powered. It was being rolled down a hill. Nikola basically came out and said, true, that video was not a truck that was self-powered, but that was not part of the sales pitch. That was merely a video of the vision of this company of developing these semi-trucks. So they essentially confirmed one of the complaints from Hindenburg research. 
but they then go on to say, that's not the truck that we're building, and we never said that it was self-powered. You, you surprised at all, Phil, that Mary Barra came out today and, and, no. and, and basically said we, we have their I'm back, not, so to speak? I'm not so only, to speak. Scott, I'm not, because I've talked with some people who are uh, intimately familiar with General Motors and the due diligence that they did. They believe that Nikola does give them some real opportunities here and that the work that Nikola is doing is legitimate. Now, does that mean that Nikola is going to be a home run, that it's going to be as huge as Tesla? No, nobody knows that at this point. But they believe that Nikola is a deal that they can work with, that they can grow with. And they certainly don't believe that this was a case of Trevor Milton and the people at Nikola pulling one over on them. Yeah, no, I, I, I ask you the question because, you know, no CEO, especially somebody of Mary Barra's stature, Correct. wants to come out and end up having egg all over their face, if not omelet all over their suit. Right. Right. And, and there are people that, that I've talked with who have said, look, if you go point by point in the, in the Hindenburg research report, there are certain things that just don't completely add up. Now, the question becomes, if you are Nikola, you get caught up in all of these. Now, you've confirmed one of their complaints, one of the things that they brought up in the report, that this was not a self-powered semi in the video. Doesn't matter that you didn't use it, you know, as part of the sales process for getting investors you used it as a vision of what the company could become. A lot of people did think it was self-powered. So now you're in this weird area here where you've confirmed one of the accusations from Hindenburg Research, and then you're refuting the other ones. Yeah. Phil, I appreciate you coming on with that news. I'm, forgive me for looking away. I mean, nickel is up almost 11% now, so it's at the highs of the day. Yeah. We'll talk to you soon. That's there Phil LeBeau on you top bet. of the story, as always. A spike in natural gas prices as Hurricane Sally heads towards the Gulf Coast. We'll get those trades, and we'll do that straight ahead. We're back. It's time for the Futures Outlook now. Take a look at natural gas. It's higher today as Hurricane Sally makes its way towards Louisiana. Let's bring in Scott Nations now of Nation Indexes for a look at where he thinks it's going to go. What do you think? Well, Scott, I think it's interesting that while Sally is headed right for a concentration of oil platforms, and some of those have stopped production and been evacuated, in general, the move is pretty short term. Uh, we've given back half of the more than half of the gain that we had earlier today. If you look at crude oil, it's not up at all. And if you look at the natural gas options, you see five puts, nearly five puts trading for each call. So uh, this is a move to fade to the upside. That is, I would be a seller of the October contract at $2.40 if I got the opportunity to do that. Target to the downside would be 210, which was the low of the move before Hurricane Laura stopped to the upside. We're always going to trade these with a stop, and particularly something like natural gas, $2.50. I would watch this really closely. I'd be careful. Maybe this is one of those futures trades that you want to express by using options and defining your risk. Yeah. All right, Scott, we appreciate that very much. Thank you. That's Scott Nations. Coming up, Unusual activity as promised with John Najarian, plus our final trades are straight ahead on the Halftime Report. We're back. Unusual activity time, Doc. Let's do it. And I guess we're starting with Snap. Indeed, Scott. And huge activity in Snap. Calls are now over 100,000 contracts today, Scott. That's way above normal. And obviously, some of that is being driven by what went on with Oracle and TikTok. So, Snap, they're buying the 2350 calls that expire next Friday. They're buying this Friday's 24 and 25 calls. In fact, those are even bigger now since the show started. They've exploded in volume on those two strikes, Scott. 
I'll be in this one about a week. Love it. We had it last week as well. The other one is a coatings company called Exalta, A-X-T-A, Exalta. Um, this one's strong activity, October 25th. They bought 7,000, bang, 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 like that. They've bought another 10,000 during the show, Scott. Now we're showing 17,000 of these OC 25 calls. I'll be in those probably about a month, All Scott. Right. Good stuff. I'm glad we got that in. Doc, thank you. Let's do final change. You, Brenda, sir. you're up first. Great. Booking Holdings, this is an asset light business model that we think is well positioned to really benefit from what we feel will ultimately be a huge pickup in leisure travel. Okay. Jimmy? You know, I keep coming back to Viacom CBS because it keeps working. You look at this chart, it's just it's just a workhorse. Okay. John Nigerian? I like that he said workhorse. I see activity in that name, Scott. But my trade is uh, Boston Scientific, BSX. Joe Terranova? I had Ken Frazier on air last Wednesday. Today he announces a strategic partnership with Seattle Genetics, a name that I'm long. This is a fantastic Oncology deal, Seattle Genetics is going to go well north of $200. All right, Rob Seachin, time's running out. What do you got quick? X XLI, industrial sector ETF, tough first three quarters, but they're right. going to rally like your Washington football team did on Jim's Eagles yesterday okay. in the final half. Thank you, guys. Thanks for watching. The exchange starts now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime you don't have to hide how you feel